Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter number one tonight, the book of 1 Peter and chapter number one. We're going to be in chapter one and we're going to be in chapter two. 1 Peter chapter one and in 1 Peter chapter number three is where we're going to hang out for the next few moments this evening. Thank you for being with us. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter one and look with me down at verse number 13. 1 Peter chapter one. And look with me at verse number 13. Wherefore, now here's a wonderful Bible study rule for you. Whenever you see the word wherefore or therefore, you should always look back to see what it is therefore. So the word therefore means he's, he's tying it to something else. It would be like, so because of, or in light of everything I just told you, what did he just tell them? Well, he told them in chapter one, or rather in verse number one, that they were strangers, notice, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So here's what he just told them. He said that they were being scattered. They were running for fear of their lives because they were Christians and they were not welcomed. Their beliefs weren't welcomed. Their values weren't welcomed. And so they were scattered. They were marked individuals. But notice he says in verse 2 that they were also elect. So this world was not their home. But God would be their father. So the word elect simply means chosen. So here's what it means. God had chosen them. The world had rejected them. Elect, chosen, strangers who are scattered, being rejected. And this is, the, this is a constant struggle in the Christian life. This is a constant battle. The conflict that we face is that we live in a world that is rejecting God, our Father. That's the struggle. And we, as his children, are called to be obedient to him. And so we find ourselves at odds with the world in which we live. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. We're here, but we long to be there with him. So because of this, that's what he's saying. Because of this, verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober to the, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written. Be ye holy. For I am holy. So how is it then. That we are to live for heaven in a world that is going to hell. How is it that we are to live holy lives in a hostile world? 
And what Peter is writing to the church and telling them is he is telling them this. Here is how you live holy. Here is how you live for heaven. Here is how you live obediently to God in a world and a culture which has rejected God. Here is how you do it. You prepare your mind. You shape your conduct. And you focus your will. Those three things. We'll take them in order this evening with the Lord's help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts tonight and give us what we need. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We are often tempted to think that no one has ever had it as bad as we have had it. It's never been as difficult for anyone else as it is difficult for us. And one of the reasons why we think that is because this is the one and only time that we have ever lived. If we would have lived before, we would know that really things were hostile for Christians before. The culture wasn't kind to Christians before. But oftentimes we think, well, no one's ever had a bad it ever, no one's ever had it as bad as me. And we think that because this is the only space and time, this is the only me that I've ever been in. And so how, how, do we, how do we navigate the seasons of life that we find ourselves in? Well, one of those ways is by looking into God's word and seeing what God's people did before, how they responded in their cultures, what God was leading and teaching them, what God's purposes and plans were for them, and then that gives us strength to know what God's purposes and plans are for us. But when you read the Bible, you'll quickly realize that God's people were dealing with some of the very same struggles that you and I are dealing with today. Take the Christians in uh, the Apostle Peter's letter. They, they are living in the most powerful nation in the world, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the America of its day. Had the biggest economy, had the best military, had the largest global footprint. And it was in the process of self-destructing. It was disintegrating from within. And Christians were standing and they were calling people to the truth of the word of God. And as a result of this, they were marked individuals. They were hated. They were hunted. Read Hebrews 11 if you would like. Turn to John uh, Fox's book of martyrs and read the accounts if you would like. But they found themselves in, in dangerous territory. The Christians of that day were feeling some of the same temptations, some of the same trials, some of the same troubles that you and I are. And this, this, this reminds us of something about the Bible. That while the Bible is an old book, the Bible is an eternal book. That, that while the Bible is an ancient book, the Bible is a living book. That while the Bible was written a long time ago, it is just as relevant for God's people today if they will, with the help of the Holy Spirit, open the Bible and obey it. And so that's what we're going to do. How, how, how does God expect us to respond in a world or a culture like we are engaged in today? When the world is turning up the heat how, as God's people, can we be wise? Can we be careful? Can we use good discernment? But not fall into the same foolish trap that the world has fallen into. Number one, we must prepare our minds. Look what he says in verse number three. Gird up the loins 
of your mind. Watch what you think about. Guard your thinking. When you are thinking about nothing, what are you thinking about? And don't say nothing. No, 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 no. The mind is always racing. The mind is always working. When you are not preoccupied with the work, when you are not preoccupied at the office, when you are not sitting at the desk, when you are thinking about nothing, what are you thinking about? What Peter is saying, and what Paul is teaching us as well, is that we must be on guard with our thoughts. We must guard the way that we think. In fact, preparing our minds to think godly thoughts is in fact an act of worship. It is one of the ways in which we love God. Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with our, that, that's, that's your emotions, with all your soul, that's your spiritual life, with all your strength, that's your physical life, and with all of your mind, that's your mental life. Every aspect of your life is to be loving God. Your emotions, your strength, your spirit, but, but your mind as well. Sometimes when people talk about worshiping God, they only speak in terms of their spiritual and emotional life. We, we say things like, well, when we sang that song, I cried. Or, or when, when we had that thing, it really moved me. I felt God's presence. And that's all well and good. But you do not only worship God with your emotions. You must also worship God with your mind. In fact, if you're just given over to your emotions, then it is your emotions which will, it was your feelings which will be guiding you in your worship instead of the truth that is guiding you in your worship. God is never saying to you or to me, well, just let down the barriers around your mind. Just think open and free thoughts. Just open yourself up for whatever might be there. God is never saying that. God is never saying, don't be thinking right now. Clear your mind and clear your head. Think nothing. God is never saying that. God is always saying, no, guard your mind. Guard your thoughts. Protect your mind. Protect your thoughts. Why? Well, very clearly, because he teaches us in Proverbs chapter 23, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Let this mind be in you, Philippians chapter 2, which was also in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, notice, by the renewing of your mind. Spiritual warfare is warfare that takes place first in your mind. It happens all in your head. You have, you have that conversation in your head 15 times before you ever say it to someone else's face. And if you would wrestle those thoughts down in your mind, it would probably keep you from a, saying a lot of things with your mouth that you wish you could take back. But we are not wrestling the thoughts down in our mind. We are not making them subject to the things of Christ. We are not aligning them in God's word. And so we're just saying out the mouth whatever may come. Instead of preparing our mind, gird up the loins of your mind. It's kind of an, it's a weird phrase for us today, but it literally means tie up your thoughts, tie up your thinking. That's literally what it means. So in their day, men would wear these long robes, something that would look like a dress. It wasn't a dress, it was a robe. And the problem was that while they wore these robes, if they wanted to run or if they wanted to work, physical work, they would have to pull up the robe and tie it up in order to be able to do any kind of physical work. If they didn't, then they would be stepping on the robe and they would face plant. It's kind of humorous to me. Every time we have a, every time we have a wedding, the, the bride is thinking about everything. She's making sure all the colors are right, all the shoes match it, all the flowers are properly arranged, all the cake, it's all in place. But the bride is never thinking about this big long dress that she has now in front of her. And she is never thinking about all of the steps from there to here. And it's inevitable, what happens? She's stepping on her dress the whole way up. 
thinking about everything except forgetting, to, forgetting that very important point. You got to make it from there to here. And what he's saying is you must gird up the loins of your mind. You must tie up your thoughts. Otherwise, you're going to be tripping over them and you're going to face plant, spiritually speaking, in this spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. We wouldn't say something like, gird up the loins of your mind. We would say it more like, roll up your sleeves. What does it mean when someone says to you, hey, roll up your sleeves? They're saying, hey, dig in, focus, pay attention. Get ready, get, work, get, get prepared. So, so Peter is saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Get mentally prepared for what you are about to be entering into in this culture that you live in. That is not all you're saying. He's also saying be sober. So this is not simply don't be drunk. He's not talking about alcohol in this context. But when he is saying don't, when he's saying gird the loins of your mind and be sober, he is saying have clear thinking. We, we, would, we would say it like, hey, get, get focused or get your thoughts under control. And how do we do that? How do we wrestle the thoughts that we have? How do we wrestle them under control? So that, so that they aren't just guiding us every which way a thought might be bouncing. How do we do that? Well, we cannot do that without the help of the Spirit. So Peter is not arguing for some kind of self-control. Some kind of, you can do this on your own. No, Peter is arguing for Spirit-controlled thoughts. He is saying, hey, you need to be very clear about what it is you're thinking about. You need to be very clear about the spiritual warfare that you are engaged in. And you need to be thinking thoughts after the Spirit of God. How many of you, when you get very emotional, your first thought is, I'm, I'm just going to go do something. How many of you are that way when you get super emotional, right? You don't need to just go do something. You need to think about what you're going to do. Because if you just go do something, you're going to go do something foolish. We, we, don't, tell, we don't tell soldiers in the army, ready, fire, aim. We don't tell them that. What do we tell them? Ready, Aim, fire. We do not say, ready, fire. Why? What did you shoot? I don't know. I'll dial it in later. No, no, no. No, we were saying, ready, aim, think, look, be clear. Be clear about what you are aiming at before you pull that trigger. Peter is talking to people who are very emotional, and there's lots of emotions that we all feel. There's nothing wrong with emotions. God has given you emotions. God has given you feelings. God has feelings. There's all kinds of passages in the Bible that help us understand the feelings of God. God is not against, God, God is not asking for you to be some kind of stoic, which is to say, God isn't asking for you to not have feelings or emotions. What God is saying is you must put them in their right place. Emotions and feelings are not what lead us and guide us in our doing. What leads us and guides us in our doing is our thinking. The cultural climate that we live in, there are so many debates, there are so many controversies. And it is so emotional. And there's very few people who are thinking clearly. Very few people who are thinking rationally. This shows us a couple of things. First, Peter is helping us understand that mindless Christianity is a problem. Mindless Christianity is a problem. Follow the, follow, follow the logic here. Watch. If Peter is saying the key to living in this world, the key to living for heaven in a world that's going to hell, is that you are clear-minded thinking spirit-controlled thoughts, what that would mean then is absent-mindedness. 
or mindless Christianity is a problem. Meaning that there is a version of Christianity which is only driven by emotion. That's all it is. It's emotional. It's, it's no reflection. There's no introspection. There's no self-awareness. It's just emotion. Jeremiah the prophet is helping us understand how much we can trust our emotions. He is saying your emotions are not trustworthy at all. In fact, your emotions, your heart, it is deceitful above all things. And it is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, I, I know that you know that verse. You've been in church long enough to hear that verse before. But, but, I, but I want you to hear this part. Your heart is desperately wicked. Because when we hear that verse, we hear that verse for somebody else. Yeah, they needed to hear that or that person. No, no, no. I needed to hear that. My heart is desperately wicked. And if I allow my emotions, my heart, if I allow my feelings to simply guide me along the way, then, then I am trusting something that Jeremiah is saying is completely evil and is trying to deceive me. There's, there's, there's very little deep thinking in our world. Have you noticed that? I, I, I think from, from the invention of social media, which is dominated by hashtags and photos, people don't think deep. In fact, if you, if you post something long and thoughtful, nobody ever reads it. We think, that's too long to read. What, do you want me to actually read words? What am I, in ninth grade? I can't read that much. Give me a hashtag. Because then I can know it all. And what happens? What happens when we don't use our minds? We are absent-minded. We are mindless. When we do not use our minds, when we are not thinking thoughts after God, then we adopt the mentality of the world around us. We accept all the philosophies that are being pushed on us. We assimilate things into our lives that may be a part of our culture, but ought not to be a part of our Christianity. And that was really good. That was really good and you missed it, so I'm going to say it again. That might be the best line in the sermon. When we're absent-minded... We adopt the mentality of the world. We accept the philosophy that the world is pushing on us. And we assimilate things into our lives that are a part of our culture, but ought not to be a part of our Christianity. That is what we are saying. That the world is pushing an agenda, which we see from the scripture, is not neutral. Do you understand? The culture is not neutral. The culture is constantly trying to conform us to the image of the world. And, the, and only Christianity is coming along and saying, no, 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 no. Do not just accept it because the culture does it. Do not just do it because everyone else is. Do not just behave that way because everyone else has. Do not just say those things because other people do. Do not just adopt things into your family because someone else had it in their family. I can't tell you how many times I see people who are adopting things culturally into their home. That be, well, this is just a culture I had. Well, maybe your culture is wrong. Well, this is just the way I grew up. Well, maybe the way you grew up was wrong. Do you see? Only Christianity can bring you to the precipice that allows you to even be able to think something like that. Oh, oh, maybe the Bible's strategy for the family is actually the one we want to work into. Where the husband leads and the wife submits and the children obey and they all do so under the umbrella of the love of God. Well, in my family, it's just, it's the, it's the women who are always leading. Well, that's wrong. 
That is not in the Bible. I don't care if it is a part of your culture. It is not a part of Christianity. Do you understand? We are constantly being, things are constantly being pushed. You are being shaped. It is not neutral. That is what I'm telling you. It is not neutral. It is trying to conform you to an image that has altogether rejected God. So we allow then our decision making to be one that's consensus based. Oh, you're upset, so I'm upset. Oh, you're going there, so I'm going there. Oh, you don't like that, so I don't like that. Well, why don't you like that? I don't know. I don't like it. She doesn't like it, so I don't like it. Why are you mad about it? I don't know why I'm mad about it. She's mad about it, so I'm mad about it. And, and then if I'm mad about it, you get mad about it too. Let's all be mad about it together. What are we really mad about? I don't know, but we're mad together. Are you, are you with me? Are you following? That's absent-minded Christianity. That's, that's mindlessness, which is a problem in Christianity because Christianity is saying, no, 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 you cannot live your life that way. And you cannot live your life that way and think that you're going to win in the spiritual warfare in which you are engaged in. You must prepare your mind. You must gird up the thoughts. You must tie them. You must take them captive. You must hold them in light of the scripture. You must submit them to the spirit. And then you must decide if that thought is actually worth, in line of the scripture and in light of the spirit, worth being acted out on. In Christianity, thinking always precedes doing. The world is never telling you, you think about what you're about to do. The world is saying, just do it, don't think. Just do it, don't think. Christianity and Christianity alone is saying, no, 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 don't just do, think. Think about what you are doing. Prepare your mind. Mindless Christianity is a problem. Second, and here's the contrast in the verse. The contrast in the verse is mindful Christianity is our only hope. So he says, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. Look at verse 13. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, in other words... You and I are to be thinking individuals, holding out our thinking and reasoning, preparing our minds until the day in which we see Jesus. I, I want to show you this other idea about using your mind. It's in chapter 3. You'll find it in verse number 8. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Look what he says. Finally, be, all, be ye all of, notice this phrase, of one mind. Do you see that? Be ye all of one mind. You know what that means? You know what that means? You know what that phrase means? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. If your husband is sleeping, elbow him. Wake him up, remind him he's married. Okay, if you're married, do you agree with your spouse on everything? You're, you're allowed to say it in church. It's okay. You can say it here. I give you permission, sir. You can say it here. No, you do not. Amanda and I don't agree on everything. Okay? Pray for her. There's obviously something she's wrong on. Obviously, it couldn't be me that's wrong. Of course you don't agree on everything. It is not saying that we must agree on everything. Unity or being of one mind does not mean uniformity. It does not mean we all have to look the same, talk the same, walk the same, act the same. That is not what he's saying. But what he's saying is we must agree, we must be of one mind, we must agree on this, which is what? Which is how are we going to be navigating in the world? Are we going to allow our feelings and emotions to be the things that navigate us? Are we going to allow our feelings and emotions to be the things that dictate our home? Are we going to allow our feelings and our emotions to be the things that shape our marriage? Are we going to allow our feelings and our emotions to be the thing that governs the way that we parent our children? Are we going to allow our feelings and our emotions to be the way in which we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are we going to allow the truth of the word of God to be the thing that we allow to shape us? We must be of one mind. It's not saying we must be the same, walk the same. It doesn't mean we'll always agree. What it means is we at least agree on this, that God's word will be the thing that guides the way in which we act. Be of one mind, he's saying. 
So it's the truth of God's word. Look, look, nowhere in the Bible, sometimes people use that verse to, to, to advocate like this wholesale unity. Unity in the Bible is never a goal. Unity is a byproduct. Unity isn't the goal. Unity is the byproduct of what? Of having pursued truth and having prepared your thoughts to think in a way that are after God and of allowing the Spirit of God to guide you so that as I am guarding my thoughts and as I am reasonably searching out the Scripture and as I am carefully walking in step with the Spirit and if you are doing that and if I am doing that then we will be ending up in very similar positions although they may be a little different they will be very similar spots. Why? Because we are saying, this is what guides us. That's what we are saying. So no matter how much pressure, we must not deviate from God's word. That's what Peter is trying to help you understand. We, we must not allow the worldly philosophies and worldly ideas to, and, 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 and cultural things to assimilate into our thinking... That would cause us then to go away from what God has clearly said in his word we need. Number one, you must prepare your mind. Number two, you must shape your conduct. So look at verse 14. He is saying, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. So he moves from what we think about to what we do. He takes you now into the realm of action, the realm of your conduct. Notice in your action or in your conduct, there's a negative and there's a positive. There's something that you don't want to do and there's something that you do. So the negative part is this, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Do, do, not, do, 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 you ever, do you ever stop and remember who you used to be before you came to Christ? What, what Peter is saying is, remember who you used to be before you came to Christ? Okay, that is not who you are supposed to be. Because, because that is a part of the culture that is of this world. It is the culture of hell. Sometimes I hear Christians talking or reminiscing about their past. I remember the good old days, the things we used to do, the way we used to live, the decisions I used to make, the commitments I used to have. Well, what were they? Peter was saying that they are former lust in your ignorance. That's what he is saying. So let me, let me speak very plain and very clear here. There are some things you used to do that you should no longer be doing. There are some people you used to hang out with that are just not good for you to hang out with. There are some internet sites that you used to visit that you have no business visiting. There are some ways you used to act that are not to be a part of who you are now. Let me, let me show you one example. I told you we're going to go to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, look at verse number 9. Peter's doing a very similar thing. He's contrasting the culture of heaven and the culture of hell. He's saying, be of one mind, pursue truth, guard the way you think. And then notice now he's contrasting. Here's the conduct. That if you are allowing God's word to shape your thoughts, if you're allowing the spirit to guide the way in which you think, notice verse 9, you will not render, not, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereto, thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So he uses two words here, very interesting words. He uses the word rendering. Do you see that word? Yes. And he uses the word railing. Do you see that word? Yes. So rendering is talking about your works. Don't do evil to someone who did evil to you. Railing is talking about your words. Don't say evil about someone who has said evil about you. That's what he's saying. He's saying in this battle, as God's people, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we must be a different kind of army. We must have, di we must have a different kind of response that even when our emotions are high, our compassion must run deep. 
We must not hate simply because we are hated. Of course, not everyone will think well of us. Why won't they? Well, because the culture in which they live reflects the values that they have. And those are not values that we as God's people have. But our conscience is clear. So the culture of hell can be broken down into two ideas, right? Rendering and railing, your words and your works. And Peter is saying, there was a way that you worked and there were things that you said that were a part of your former life. They were from your ignorance. And that is no longer, what, what is ignorance? Do you know what ignorance is? Not knowing. Ignorance is not, it was your former ignorance. You didn't know. You didn't, you weren't able to process spiritual truth. You weren't able to process spiritual thought. Well, now you are. And so these ways, your words and your works, which were a part of your former life, which were a part of your ignorance, they are not to have any part of this life. Why? Because this life isn't ignorant. This life is using its mind. It's thinking. It's the culture of hell. He contrasts that culture. Then go back, go back to chapter 14. He contrasts not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. He contrasts with that with as obedient children. You see what he's doing? He's connecting you to your heavenly father. So there's a culture of hell. Second, there's a culture of heaven. We are to be living in this culture right here. What this culture is called is in verse 15... But as he which hath called you is holy. Holiness is, a, is, a, is an interesting word even for church people. If I pulled 10 people up on here to the platform and I asked you, tell me what holiness is. I would probably get 10 different answers. What's holiness? He is telling us in this passage that we are to be holy he is telling us that he has called us to holy, holiness. He is telling us that we are to be holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation is the way we live. So it's a very important part of living out our lives in the culture that we live in. A very important part of that is to be holy. So what's holiness? Holiness is, to give you a simple definition probably an oversimplification of the word holiness, but I think, I think sufficient. Holiness is growth in godliness and sanctification in your body. Growth in godliness, sanctification in your body. Godliness is like God. So growth in being like God and sanctification in your body. Holiness is growth in being like God. The way you think, the way you respond, the entertainments you enjoy, the words you say, the thoughts you have. Growth in godliness and sanctification in your body. And this is what it means to be holy. When I lose track of that simple definition of holiness, I try to think of holiness by, by description to be holy in your mind, what would that mean? Well, it would mean that your mind is filled with the knowledge of God and it is fixed on things that are good. What does it mean to be holy with your eyes? It means that your eyes turn away from anything that, are, that would be sensual. They would, they, would, they would shudder at the sight of evil. It would mean your eyes are holy. What about your mouth? It means that your mouth would tell the truth. It would refuse to gossip. It would refuse to say things that are obscene. Be a holy mouth. To gossip, to slander, to say things that are un, to say, to say things that are obscene. Curse words, dirty jokes. That's unholy. So if you're going to have a holy mouth. Or holy eyes or a holy... What about a holy soul? How would your soul be holy? A holy soul would mean that you would rest and rejoice in Jesus. How about your muscles? How would they be holy? 
means they would, they would work, they would strive for Christ's likeness. How about, how about your heart? How do you experience holiness in your heart? It would mean that your heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness. It's full of patience instead of irritability. It's full of kindness instead of anger. It's full of humility instead of pride. What does it mean to be holy in your body then? With what you do physically. A holy body would mean that you're pure, that you're reserving yourself for the intimacy and privacy of marriage, which according to the Bible is one man and one woman for one lifetime. It would be you have a holy body. What about holy hands? What would it mean to have holy hands? It means that you'd have hands that are quick to help the needy. They're quick to fold in prayer. What about holy feet? What would that mean? What, what would it mean if your feet were holy? It would mean that they move toward the needy. They would move away from senseless conflict or division. They would run from sin. They would run to God. Holiness. Is your mind holy tonight? Are your eyes, your mouth, your soul, your spirit, your heart, your body, your feet, your hands? Are they holy? Holiness is a reflection of God. The Bible is saying that God is holy. In fact, holiness is the essential part of God's character. You remember the angels in Isaiah, they're surrounding the throne. What are they saying about God? Holy Holy, holy. It's interesting, isn't it? That the angels surrounding the throne of God are not saying loving, loving, loving. They're not saying mercy, mercy, mercy. They're saying holy, holy, holy. Without holiness, the Bible says no one will see the Lord. No one has holiness on their own. The Bible teaches us that we're all sinners. So you do not have a holiness, you, can, you cannot possess a holiness on your own. So how are we given holiness? And God has provided holiness for us, which is found in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the holiness of God. He was, a, he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He never thought a wrong thought. He never did a wrong thing. He never took a wrong move. He was holy. And in his holiness, he went to the cross and he died in our place. Holiness is a reflection of God. But let me give you another thought here. Holiness is a resemblance of God. He is saying, as obedient children, be holy. Peterson has a great paraphrase on this. He says, listen, listen to what Peterson says. He says, as obedient children, let yourself be pulled into the way of life which is shaped by God's life. I love that line. A life shaped by God's life. So if we are truly Christians, then there ought to be a family resemblance, right? If God is our father, I remember as a little kid, I would go places, they'd say, ah, oh, that's, that's Dan Delaney's boy. That's Dan Delaney's boy. I, I, I bear the name of my father, Holiness is a reflection of God. Holiness ought to be a family resemblance. If God is holy and I'm his son, should I not resemble him? If God is your father, should you not have some family resemblance? Let me give you a third thought here. Holiness is a reflection of God. Holiness is a resemblance of God. But holiness is, an, is a rebellion against the world. Holiness is a rebellion against the world. You know what sin is? Sin is when we rebel against God. The world is in rebellion against God. Holiness is when the children of God are rebelling against the world. We are saying, no, we're not going to do those things. No, we're not going to behave that way. No, we're not going to think that, those thoughts. And the world is looking at us and they're saying, well, that's weird. Why, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you say that? 
It would be like a young Christian couple. They're dating. They're thinking that they're going to get married, but they won't sleep together. And the world is saying, well, that's weird. But why wouldn't you do that? Why, wouldn't you, why don't you guys just live together? See if, you, see if you actually are compatible. And they're saying, no, we cannot do that. We're Christians. That would be, that would be unholy. And we are to be holy like God's holy. It would be like your friends saying to you, hey, let's, let's go hang out on Saturday. And you go, I, or, or rather, hey, let's go hang out on Sunday. And you're saying, oh, I, I can't hang out on Sunday. I, I got to get up early. I got to go to church. That's where I serve. They would go, what? That's weird. You go to church and serve. What, do they pay you for that? No. You mean you make nothing? I make nothing. I do it because I love the people that I serve and I love the God who I serve. And they're going, this is weird. Who does that? Or people who are holy. You see, if we're really going to engage the culture, we must prepare our minds, must wrestle every thought in line with Scripture. We must shape our conduct. We must be holy in the words we use, the works we have. Let's rebel against the world that we live in and live out a holy resemblance of God who is our Father, who is holy. The world is doing all they can to conform you to be like them. If you conform to be like the world, you live in rebellion to God. And God wants you to be like his son Jesus and if you live like Jesus, you will be in rebellion against the world. But you will rebel against one or the other. Third thought here, you must focus your will. That's what he's saying in verse 16. He's saying at the end of verse 15, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Does, does, does verse 15, does the end of it, does it say in some of your conversation? Yes or no? Yes or no? Does it say in most of your conversation? Yes or no? It says in all of your conversation. I, I, I looked up that word in all your conversation. I looked it up in the Greek. And in the Greek, you know what that word means? It means all of your conversation. Phillips translates it. In every department of your life. Be holy in every department of your life. How can we have that kind of focus? Two things. First, focus on the scripture. That is what he is saying in verse 16. Notice what he is saying. He is saying, because it is written... So, so what is he reminding Christians of? He's reminding them of what is written. He's reminding them of the scripture. So one of the ways in which we focus our will is we focus our will in line with the scripture. The Bible is your flashlight in a very dark world. So Peter is anticipating the world's going to be dark. How are you going to know what to do? You need to prepare your mind. You need to shape your conduct. And you need to focus your will. And the way you do that is you get your Bible out and it becomes your flashlight in this dark world that we live in. Focus on the scripture. Second, he is saying focus on future judgment. That's really verse 17. We won't go there. But just notice it says this way. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. Can, can I tell you this? Every man, every person will one day be judged by God for everything. And God is a much better judge than you or me. Do you know why? You know why he is a, he is a just judge, that's what the Bible calls him? Because he is a discerner of thought and intent of the heart. One of the reasons why 
you aren't a great judge and I'm not a great judge is because we don't know all about someone else. We can only judge one particular thing. We can only judge this deed. We cannot read thoughts. We cannot read minds. We cannot read intention. Now we like to, we like to presuppose we know somebody's heart. We like to presuppose we know what their intention was. But we can't really know that. We can only know the deed. And the reality is sometimes even when we look at the deed, even that singular deed, we might be reading wrong. We might not have all the information about it. We might only be limited to a particular part. But, but saying, saying, say even if we didn't know it all, you still, there's so much more that you do not know. So you can only judge the action. It's the most famous verse in all the world. You cannot judge me. The Bible says don't judge. No, no, no. The, the Bible says God will judge. And he is a just judge. So how do we focus our will in this world? It's very easy. It's very easy to get sidetracked in this world where it's all emotionally driven by saying, I want him to be judged and I want her to be judged and I want that to be judged and they did this to me this one time and I want it to be made right. Listen, friend, one day, all the sad things, the bad things, the mad things, they will be undone in the sight of God. He is a just judge. You and I are simply what Peter is saying to make it in this war, in this culture, we are to be preparing our mind. We are to be shaping our conduct. And we are to be focusing our will on him.